Well, welcome everyone to today's webinar, The Pause, Chaplain-Led Post-Traumatic Debriefs and Preliminary Research. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs for the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. Let me just say a few words on behalf of the lab before we get started. First, like almost all of our events, this is being recorded. You'll get a link to that recording in a few days. So don't worry if you miss a point, you want to come back to something, you'll get that recording and you can watch it uh, whenever you like. Second, you'll also have a chance to fill out a very brief survey about today's webinar that helps us plan future events that are responding to your needs and what you want to know. So just take maybe a minute and fill that out if you could. And then finally, I want to thank our supporters for today's event, uh, which are Transforming Chaplaincy and IU Health. We appreciate that they value so highly the work of Shelly and her team, and we're really grateful for their support. Let me introduce our guest very briefly, and then I'll hand it over. Shelly Varner-Perez, who led the study we'll discuss, is a research chaplain and senior program manager. Kelly Mathis and Greg Morse are both staff chaplains, and Shelly, Kelly, and Greg all serve within IU Health. And then finally, Ann Cottingham is a health services researcher and the director of research in health professions, education and practice at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, I'm so pleased today to be with a team from Indiana University, my own alma mater, especially as we bask in the glow of a two game undefeated streak for IU football, which doesn't happen very often. I'm enjoying it while it lasts. Uh, Kelly, I think you're going to talk first for us, so I will turn it to you. Thanks a lot, Michael. Um, so hi, I'm uh, Kelly Mathis. We're going to go ahead and start uh, start working through the slides. Um, so you just heard a little bit about the people we're going to hear about hear from today, and we'll go ahead and uh, go to the next slide and uh, say that we're very grateful for the IU Health Values Grant. Um, that was a two-year grant that we were able to get for this study that we're talking about today. Um, and the next slide. This is a quick outline of what uh, we're going to cover. And this is the team that did all the work, right? So um, on a personal note, I was a little intimidated by research when I first started dipping my toes in that water because I thought I had to know everything. And it turns out you just have to know all the people. Um, so uh, the team that is on the slide, all of them had a very important part in the study we're talking about um, that we're continuing to to bring it bring to a close. And they're definitely one of the reasons I'm super grateful to be part of this healthcare system at IU Health. Uh, so moving on. It was important for me to uh, start off today talking about how this study uh, came about because for me personally, um, it's important that research rise organically out of the clinical setting, right? So. Uh, as part of the my assignment on an ICU here at IU Health, um, I attended Code Blue Committee meetings. The Code Blue Committee was a group of people, multidisciplinary team, that uh, was designed to troubleshoot code-related issues for the system. So if, if code cards weren't stocked correctly, they would address that. If our data was showing that compression depth wasn't deep enough, they would address that. And at one of these meetings, uh, the physician who was co-chairing was very upset that post-code debriefs were not happening. They happened when he led a code, but if anybody else was leading the code, they didn't happen. And that made him frustrated. And so we, they began to discuss this dilemma about, uh, about post-code debriefs, that they weren't happening. And then they also had this tension between what was the purpose of the debrief? Was it supposed to be a 
clinical debrief to talk about the technical skills and what went well and what didn't, or was it supposed to uh, take care of the emotional responses of the staff? Um, and everyone on the committee really valued being able to take care of the, um, the staff uh, and the emotional responses to being part of a code. Um, and so I got to be the chaplain in this conversation and uh, anyone who's been part of George Fitchett's uh, research summer camp knows that the first thing he would say if you have an idea for research is go to the literature. So we went to the literature and we found out that in most hospitals, uh, physicians were expected to lead codes and in most hospitals, they didn't do it. And the literature said that they didn't do it because they weren't trained to, um, they didn't have time. Um, and in some cases, the physicians were really honest in, in the research and said, we just lost a patient, you know, and it is profoundly unfair to expect a doctor whose patient just coded and perhaps died to then pivot and lead a debrief process about that experience. Um, and so in this room, I got to say, oh, man, if only we had professional clinical staff who responded to every code and were specifically trained to facilitate group processes. Oh, wait, we do. There's chaplains there all the time. Um, and so we began to explore this idea of chaplains partnering with clinicians to lead a postcode debrief. Um, the second part of that was looking at the debrief models. And there are a lot of, out, a lot of models out there for different contexts, right? There's a critical incident stress debriefing, um, which doesn't exactly fit in the postcode world. And there was some literature that was concerned that CISD can lead to re-traumatization. And when we looked into that, that really was when CISD was used uh, outside of its intended purpose, right? So um, if it was used for someone who had experienced physical trauma, like a, a burn victim or someone who had been in a motorcycle accident, or accident and if it was used in a one-on-one -on -one non-therapeutic setting, uh, that's when there was some evidence that CISD could cause harm but if it was used shortly after an accident, if it was a group process, and if it would involved a critical incident, but not physical trauma, it was normally had good results. Um, we looked at the John, Johns Hopkins psychological first aid model, uh, which was really, again, designed for like a, na a natural disaster response for uh, people responding to earthquakes and, and those sorts of emergencies. Um, and uh, we kind of, we, we worked on those and we, we learned from them. And they taught us that we should, if we're going to debrief, we should do it the same day. We should do a hot debriefing and have it relatively quickly after the event. Um, we should always try to do it in a group. This is not designed to be a one-on-one -on -one process. Um, and uh, we should have a trained facilitator, right? Sometimes uh, the dilemma with the previous debrief models was that the person was not trained to facilitate. Um, we looked for clinical models also, and uh, Sweeberg. Uh, who will link in our bibliography, uh, had a model for debriefing in a pediatric setting after a code. And the American Heart Association has many debrief models uh, for post-code um, debriefs, and they all address the clinical skills. Um, so our, our study um, was what happens if we have a clinician, a, a physician maybe, or a charge nurse, or a nurse practitioner um, lead the part of the debrief that says, what went well, what didn't go well, did we give epinephrine in time, the clinical skills. And then we have a chaplain standing right next to them to say, how are we feeling? What comes next for you? And elicit those emotional responses. Um, and marry two models with modifications as we went. 
So um, that's a little bit of how we got started. But once we went to the literature and we read about the models and we started developing tools, we really needed to understand what was happening in our setting. Uh, so if we can go ahead and go to the next slide. So this is kind of the, uh, the path we took and you'll see the slide again later. Um, but the very first thing uh, that we needed to do is really understand what our staff were experiencing. We wanted to make sure that we were responding to a real lived experience. And um, so Anne is gonna to talk to us a little bit about the data that came out of that first part of the, of the study. So thank you, Kelly. So as, as she just shared, the study that I'm going to be sharing, uh, not the results of the, the large study uh, that's ongoing right now, uh, involving the piloting of the debrief tool, but, but this was the first step. And that was trying to understand what are the experiences of care team members at our institution who participate in codes. Uh, and so the care team members, I'll just briefly go through these uh, preliminary steps were recruited uh, by uh, those who volunteered to complete a study, were invited to participate in a qualitative interview to explore their experiences of code events. Uh, these interviews were all conducted uh, by phone by the trained research staff um, of this research project using a semi-structured interview guide. Uh, 22 care team members participated, and those included physicians, advanced practice providers, nurses, pharmacists, and respiratory therapists, uh, and with multiple uh, levels of experience in participating in codes. Uh, and so these interviews were all recorded, transcribed. We conducted our analysis using uh, an online software called QDA Minor Light. Uh, and we had a diverse team uh, looking at the data and trying to identify uh, what we were learning from that, that included a chaplain, a nurse, a health services researcher, two research specialists, uh, and those familiar with qualitative analysis will understand the importance of having a team with multiple perspectives. Uh, the, the approach that we used was a modified grounded theory approach. So uh, it was basically two phases. In the first phase, we reviewed all of the transcripts of each interview carefully, uh, reading through them, familiarizing ourselves with them, uh, and then began to meet to discuss what we were finding. Um, and so items that looked important and relevant to the research question, we labeled with a name that is called a code. Um, because we were meeting together as a team, we could talk about the codes, we could make sure we were all in agreement about what piece of data uh, aligned with a specific code name. Uh, and as we went through and created additional codes, we developed and agreed on a code book, uh, which is the first phase in, in the analysis process. And then in phase two, uh, when the coding was completed, we reviewed all the data that that we had gathered and begun to organize and identified some broader conceptual themes. Uh, and we continued this until we'd reached theoretical saturation or we were finding no new information in the data. So what did we learn? What did we learn about how our care team members experience codes at our institution? 
So we learned that oftentimes codes are experienced as violent and traumatic events. Uh, here are two quotes from individuals with very different levels of experience with codes, but both identifying similar responses. Um, one uh, said it's a big, almost violent thing that you go through at the end of life. It feels scary and I dread it. Uh, another one, uh, the code impacts you mentally, emotionally, physically. You see things during a code that are just, I wouldn't say gore or horrifying, but I mean, you're looking at someone who's just died, who was maybe just talking to you a few minutes ago. It's really rattling, honestly. So, so across all of the information that we received, there was a general theme that codes were a difficult event to experience, um, often violent, often traumatic. Other participants described them as chaotic, stressful, hectic, pressured. Um, these were difficult, difficult events for individuals from multiple different backgrounds and multiple different levels of experience. Um, it's a chaotic and stressful event, or there's, there's pressure to get things done quickly. We heard a lot of, of the quote that we have here under stress. I get a bit of an adrenaline spike. Adrenaline was commonly mentioned along with stress as a typical response to being called to a code. Um, and it being hectic, rush, 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 get it done quickly. Uh, so, so clearly participants uh, had uh, not only probably a psychological response to these codes, but many of them also had a physical response as well. Many mentioned feelings of different kinds of emotions that were particularly strong during a cold. Um, guilt, if the code didn't go the way they had wanted to go. A sense of anxiety throughout the code. There, there was an overwhelming sense of uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen, uh, and anxiety that was associated with that. Um, depression. Um, this, one, this individual says, I've been trying to focus on the bright side because otherwise I would get depressed. Um, codes, especially when they don't go well, can be very difficult for the participants uh, to, to deal with. And, and then sadness. It, it's sad if it doesn't work. So these kinds of emotions were mentioned um, in many, many of the interviews that we conducted. And so in addition to kind of the overarching responses to the code that we saw, Participants also described very specific factors that influenced the way they experienced the code. So some of those factors were if they had a prior relationship with the patient or family, if they knew them in some way, maybe it would be their patient, for example. Um, that created a more stressful experience Oftentimes the feeling of responsibility, particularly if it's your patient, um, that you're responsible for bringing them through the code, or maybe you were responsible for not having done something that could have prevented the code. So there was a lot of, of guilt and emotional response uh, when that individual happened to be your patient. And then if the family was present, obviously concerned, many, many uh, reported feeling upset and sad. Uh, and having a response to uh, the family being present as well. Lack of previous experience with codes was a big one. If individuals hadn't been in part of many codes, uh, oftentimes the experience was uh, much stronger than for individuals who had a long history of participating in codes. This individual 
noted that they had not worked in an acute care setting before. And so the code experience was new and said, I just feel general fear and worry of what's going on with that person. And then two, being new in the situation, I'm, I'm sorry, can you go back? <laughs> Thank you, Shelly. Being new in that situation, I'm worried that I'm not going to know what I'm supposed to do, how best to help out and contribute. Um, and so we heard these two concerns multiple times from individuals, particularly who didn't have a lot of experience, both having great fear for the individual who was coding, but then also being concerned about their own role, wanting to contribute and being afraid that they might not have the skills needed yet. Thank you. Um, those on the flip side who had had more experience with codes often expressed a, a different perspective. Um, for example, this individual noted that codes are stressful, but having been in critical care for 11 years, they expect them more and are able to remain calm, uh, which was a little bit different. Um, and some individuals were involved in units who often experienced codes. And so again, when the unit experienced the code a lot, there was a greater sense of, of calm or understanding that these happen frequently. So um, our unit experiences codes a lot. So usually staff members already know what the physician is paid to do and they know what the plan is. They know where to jump in just because they happen so often. So previous experience definitely impacted the code experience for many of our participants. Um, some participants were uncomfortable with their role on the code. And so that was an important factor in creating a more stressful experience. Um, some were uncomfortable running the code, um, calling for the epi, calling for things uh, from the other members of the care team. It was far more stressful for them if they had to be in a leadership role. Several didn't care for the role of the recorder. So depending on your role, there's a different stress level. Recording is a stressful job. And of course, for many of these individuals, when you run into the code, you grab whatever role is open. Um, and so there's not a sense that you always have the same role for many of the members of the care team. And so again, that uncertainty of what your role would be and the possibility of ending up with a role that you felt less prepared for or you didn't feel comfortable doing uh, was another source of stress for many of our participants. However, those uh, involved in a code where individuals were familiar with their roles had a very different sense of what the whole code experience was like. So this individual says that uh, the code occurred at an ICU. It ran like butter. It was super easy. People already knew their roles and no one really had to be told anything. So you can see how the experience of the code varied dramatically depending on uh, the experience level individuals had, the location of the code, uh, and whether individuals were familiar and comfortable in the roles that they had. Hospital staffing was another issue that, that was brought up. Um, if When a nurse is called off a unit to participate in a code, there's of course concern about the patients that remain on the unit. Is there enough staffing in the hospital to care for those patients while uh, individuals, clinicians from that unit are gone <laughs> participating in the code. Uh, and so it was a high stress level 
for those who felt they were on units that were not well-staffed and that leaving their patients to help a, a coding patient was actually something uh, that was a disadvantage to their patient. Uh, lack of strong leadership, we heard again and again, the importance of having someone on the code who was really able to confidently step up and run the code. Um, this individual noted that, that lack of someone assigning roles and taking on the role of leader is something that contributes toward that more hectic feel. On the flip side, Benny mentioned that if you have effective leadership, codes are much stronger. Um, what needs to happen? I think the most helpful thing is the person running the code and thinking out loud and discussing what needs to happen. And I think the leader is the key in that. And another participant mentioned, this one wasn't too bad. The physician who was running it was very strong. I knew how to interact with him. He was very clear about what was going on and calm, and that made it easy. So, so the level of code leadership also had a big impact on the code experience of our participants. And not only leadership, but teamwork. Um, so if the team knew each other and was able to work well together, codes were less stressful, less hectic, and uh, a better experience for the participants. Uh, for example, I could, I could hand someone medications. They trust me with the doses. They have to ask less questions and can focus on the patient. Or another participant said, everyone was communicating and helping out. People were jumping in for each other. It looked smooth and efficient to me. That was really good. And finally, uh, a participant shared that we work well as a team because everyone's looking out for everyone, including the patient. Physicians are good at directing us, just generally basically working like a machine and knowing what we need to do. So virtually every individual that talked with us shared the importance of needing to talk or debrief in some way after a code. Uh, these are just three examples. Uh, you have to debrief. You kind of have to resettle yourself. You sort of have to recenter yourself to come down off the adrenaline rush and start to process things again before you can move on to the next case. Or I think at that time, we had the feeling of going from 100 to zero. I typically try to take a moment for just myself and the patient to properly process everything that happened before jumping right back into whatever I was doing prior to the code. So this is the kind of thing we heard frequently. Individuals, again, both very experienced or novice, wanted to and frequently did take the time on their own to try to debrief and process the events, recognizing how impactful they were. But, but we also frequently heard what this third individual said. Um, I will say that in two and a half to three years on our unit, I've actually never seen a debrief just because we're so busy afterwards. So while many individuals were, were debriefing themselves, there was no formal debrief process uh, or very infrequently um, that was in place to really help all the individuals on the team process what had happened in that often you know, violent, traumatic, stressful event before going back to the unit and trying to jump back into the regular patient care. 
So that's a quick summary of, of what we found in terms of the experience that current care team members in our institution were having with codes. Uh, difficult events uh, for multiple factors uh, that often were not being addressed post-code. Thank you, Anne. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the testing phase of our study, um, the draft debrief guide and how that came about and how we moved um, toward the debrief guide that we ended up piloting hospital-wide. Move back for a second. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So Kelly told us a little bit about the review of the literature that was conducted um, to learn what was being done elsewhere after the problem was identified um, as part of conversations with the Code Blue Committee. So drawing from the literature and from our chaplaincy experiences at Codes, we drafted a debrief guide and we included prompts that we thought might be important and prompts that seemed to be missing from the other guides we had found in the literature. Then we sought input from the clinicians on the study team before we began testing this um, trial debrief tool on the unit. And a little bit about that unit. So prior to the outset of the study, we had identified a unit in our hospital that had the highest frequency of code events because of how sick the patients on that unit were. We discussed the study with their leaders and invited their input onto the study procedure and process. And in fact, one of their leaders wrote a letter um, supporting the study as part of our grant application, and that was very helpful for our collaboration. So on that single ICU, we began using the draft guide, um, and our study protocol included interviews with participants throughout the study. As Anne has mentioned, we interviewed um, people before we started offering any kind of a debrief process so we could better understand what their sort of baseline, general, usual experiences of codes were and where the gaps were and what types of support they might benefit from and desire. And then we conducted additional interviews as we were trialing this um, early debrief tool. So we used semi-structured interviews. So each time we interviewed a participant during this testing phase, we actually specifically asked about prompts that we had added to the debrief guide, both the concept and the phrasing. Any topics that we may have missed, tell us what wasn't part of the debrief that you would like to talk about or like to discuss or that would be beneficial. And then we talked about the flow of the debrief. We wanted to make sure that we were in encouraging uh, use of clinical language that resonated with the care team. We also wanted to frame the debrief in a way that made sense to clinicians and that was responsive to clinical flow. These are really busy units. So taking say an hour to discuss a code event uh, was not really feasible. Um, we didn't wanna add any undue burden on their already very busy uh, demanding schedules. So throughout the interviews, we invited input about the timing of the debrief as well, relative to the code event, about whether people preferred it immediately post-code, like within 30 minutes, within a few hours, or within the same shift as best we were able. So following every one to two interviews during this testing phase, the team met to discuss the interview content and to determine any changes to the guide prior to the next study-related code. And each time we repeated these prior steps until we reached saturation, which meant that we were hearing the same themes or receiving no new or minimal new information. 
Before we move on a little bit to discuss more about the debrief tool in detail, I do want to spend a few minutes talking about what George Fichette calls looking under the hood for the mechanical inner workings and share a little bit about the day-to-day -day experiences of chaplaincy research. So COVID changed a lot of things for many of us, not only about our practice, but in, on the research side of things, how research is conducted. So our in-person team meetings quickly became Zoom-a-thons. Um, there were a lot of upsides to this actually because our team worked on different campuses and some research staff worked from home. And by meeting on Zoom, we avoided the logistics of meeting rooms, the commute time between campuses and so on. And for this coding process that Anne described, um, where we were going through each of the transcripts of the interviews um, and discussing them, was very helpful to be able to screen share while we were on these virtual meetings. Oddly though, due to these meetings being virtual with our research team, I didn't meet one of the study mentors, Dr. Ahmed, until 18 months into the study. We had had plenty of phone conversations and email exchanges and Zoom calls prior, um, but making that, making that I feel like I already know you situation when we finally met in person. So the study chaplains pictured here also met regularly to discuss changes to the guide during the testing phase, to discuss any challenges with recruitment and how they were experiencing their roles as a study chaplain. This more recent photo depicts the team after social distancing and PPE restrictions have been lifted. So as far as developing the guide, uh, recording devices were valuable tools for those interviews that I was telling you about. Sometimes it was challenging to identify a time when participants were available for the interviews, given that most of these team members work 12-hour shifts. So this required a lot of creative problem solving and flexibility to reschedule if needed if a participant, for instance, had to work late or got called in for a shift. We conducted quite a few evening and weekend interviews all by phone. And then updates to our study procedures during COVID required that we add disinfecting wipes to all of our study binders. This may seem like a small thing, but there were so many changes during COVID, um, keeping track of them and implementing them all um, could get challenging at times. Chaplains used the blank forms in these binders um, when we responded to codes and to minimize a different type of contamination, not of the infectious disease sort. Many of our participant interviews were conducted by research staff who were not chaplains, um, so that when we were asking people to talk about their experience of a debrief led by, co-led by a chaplain, it was not a chaplain receiving those responses. If a chaplain did conduct the interview, it was not the same chaplain as who led the debrief, and this is important for um, research rigor and avoiding bias. So we publicized the study by collaborating with unit leaders and hospital committees. We attended ship changes and huddles. We were added to unit newsletters and um, posted approved flyers and staff break rooms. We hoped to garner interest and buy-in from participants because we knew that this was a new thing that we were asking. It would mean for a different flow for their work and a pause that they weren't used to. So chaplains successfully recruited multidisciplinary team members to participate in the study. Um, and as Ann mentioned, that included advanced practice providers, nurses, physicians, respiratory therapists, and pharmacists. 
So now I'm going to turn it over to Greg. Well, I have one more picture of Chaplain's Recruiting here, um, our multidisciplinary team member. And then I'm going to turn it over to Greg to tell us a little bit about leading a debrief. Thank you, Sally. So the postcode debrief is led is co-led by a clinical uh, person who is a physician, charge nurse, clinical mad, uh, manager, and the emotional debrief is led by a healthcare chaplain. The clinical debrief uh, consists of uh, a couple of sentence overview of the patient's case, such as primary diagnosis, any core morbidities that may be present, and any other pertinent info uh, surrounding the code. And so then the clinical uh, manager or charge nurse invites input from others, one or more questions, uh, which we see below, such as what went well, what were some of the challenges? And sometimes when we, uh, the clinician asked those questions, uh, a response was not readily forthcoming. And so then we use prompts such as, were there any delays in the treatment uh, to try to, you know, elicit a response from the team members. Uh, and then finally talked about, were there any issues with supplies or processes? Was the cold cart fully stocked? Uh, did we have everything that we needed on hand uh, for the, the, the brief to, I mean, excuse me, for the code to go smoothly? Then it's handed off to the chaplain, the healthcare chaplain. And uh, both of these portions are designed to last for about five minutes. Sometimes they go a little longer. Uh, so the chaplain, the emotional debrief, uh, were there additional factors that influence your experience of the code, such as time of day, family dynamics, staffing, shift change, bonding with a patient? Um, inevitably, if you if if a staff member has cared for a patient more than one time, there could have been some you know emotional attachment, some type of bonding had taken place. Secondly, what emotions did you experience? And are you experiencing new or different emotions as we're discussing the code? Uh, some examples, stressful, intense, chaotic, calm. And then finally, uh, were your reactions similar to or different from what you expected or from other codes you experienced? Did the code catch you by surprise? We can go to the next slide. One of the things that I always would tell uh, would tell the staff members uh, after uh, the debrief is that chaplaincy is available. You see us walking around the unit. We're not only here for patient and family members, but we're also here uh, for staff. And so. Uh, it's important that uh, after every de debrief that the chaplain uh, conveys that to the staff members. But the whole debrief process consists of evaluation. So we're listening to hear what is going on with the staff mem members. Then we're designing an intervention. Uh, will that be processing with coworkers? Will it be follow up with the chaplain for some one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, and then, or it could be uh, recommended employee assistance, EAP. Uh, and then we follow up to ensure that the staff members have uh, been connected to all the resources they need. Uh, 
if they needed EAP, if they needed follow-up with uh, the chaplain, and, uh, and then continually remind them that we're available for you if, uh, if we're needed. Thank you, Greg. And then what do our data show from uh, the surveys and interviews um, that participants provided um, after this debrief model was used hospital-wide? Um, so we had 53 participants from multiple disciplines um, who responded to a survey that was one week after the code. Um, and uh, the same survey was administered again six weeks later, and we had 42 responses um, for, for that survey. Um, and um, after this debrief model had been used hospital-wide, we conducted an additional 28 interviews um, with participants from multiple disciplines, um, multiple years of service, some newer, some um, longer service um, in their discipline and within the institution to understand um, what they found helpful, um, what else they would like to see, um, what aspects of the debrief um, were beneficial. So our last study debrief um, concluded in June um, of, of just earlier this summer. Um, we completed 17 um, debriefs following 17 code events on eight different clinical units within the hospital. Um, some of those were medical surgical units, uh, sort of general units. Some of them were um, progressive care or step-down units, and some of those were ICUs. We received um, good feedback about satisfaction with the debrief process, um, almost nine in 10 so that they would recommend the debrief to a colleague. Um, about eight in 10 said that the debrief helped them refocus to care for their other patients. Um, and 77% there responded that the debrief helped them process emotions about the resuscitation efforts. And I think this is really important because one of the gaps in the literature that we had noticed um, and that I heard more about um, um, at another presentation was actually that emotions were not being addressed as part of any um, existing debrief processes. As scarce as those processes were, they definitely did not address emotions. So that was part of the gap. So pulling together this clinical and emotional debrief in about 10 minutes with the co-leaders of a chaplain and a clinician um, really is quite novel. What are our next steps with this study? Um, we're completing analysis of those qualitative interviews, those 28 that occurred after the debrief. Um, we're in the process of writing manuscripts, so we plan to get some publications out into the world soon. Um, and one of our next steps is um, we're exploring how we may continue in a future iteration of this study. Um, so this is a bit of an invitation to reach out if you would be interested um, in being involved in some way um, in a future study um, similar to this one. Today, we'd really like to acknowledge all the contributors. Um, research is a team effort. It's a team sport, I tell folks. And so there really were a lot of stakeholders to make this um, process successful. Um, certainly the Evans Center that administers the IU Health Values Grants, um, where we received our funding, we're grateful to them. IU Health Spiritual Care and Chaplaincy Department, um, particularly our leaders, Vern Barnum and Linnell Beatty, the Code Blue Committee for their input, um, and other clinical leaders, Evan Casper, Megan Cobby, and Tyson Newman. And just as a bit of personal privilege, I'll say that prior to uh, my role at IU Health, um, I was with the Portland VA and worked in critical care there. And some nurse leaders um, 
engaged with me and collaborated, um, invited my collaboration on um, thinking about debrief efforts there. And those were early thoughts that then contributed um, to this project here. Here's our bibliography. The slides will be available to you um, when the recording, when you receive the recording. Um, so you can follow up and read for some additional resources if you would like. And then also the IU Health uh, Chaplaincy team, some members of the team um, wrote a free, wrote an ebook that's available freely to you. It's called Staff Care and Response to Traumatic Events. Um, it has a wider range of traumatic events than just code events. Um, so if that's of interest, um, feel free to utilize the QR code. I'll leave it up here for a moment um, to take a look. Uh, the co-authors of that are um, Patrick, myself, Myra, and Eric, um, and I'm grateful to them for their contributions to that ebook. And Michael, I believe we're ready for some questions. Well, thank you all very much for this uh, extremely informative and, and fascinating uh, presentation. I, I know that the, the chat is very engaged, and this is clearly speaking to a need that a lot of people are experiencing in their own institutions. So let's get right to the questions. And there's a couple comments here as well. Uh, one person, Dennis, says, we use psychological first aid as our model in a psych hospital where there are a lot of staff assault and threats, so uh, different kinds of traumatic events. Thank you for that, Dennis. Uh, Robert says, uh, unless I missed it, I didn't see mental health providers mentioned. Uh, are they ever considered to be part of this team? And is there ever pushback from mental health clinicians about this being chaplain-led and not mental health provider-led? That's a good question, Robert. And I'll leave all these questions over to whoever is sort of best positioned to answer them. Thank you, Michael. I'm going to invite my co-presenters to come back on camera um, if they are able to and Kelly, can I pitch that first question to you about mental health while I put that QR code back up for someone's request? Uh, sure. I saw Robert had a couple of concerns about uh, uh, the use of or lack of use of mental health professionals in this model. So um, at our hospital, we don't have mental health professionals integrated into our normal floor interdisciplinary teams. Uh, we do have, have a behavioral health floor and setting where mental health professionals work, but uh, part of the reason that chaplains were the intuitive um, co-facilitators of these debriefs is because we're already on the floors with, with relationships built with the staff. I want to be clear that we are not providing mental health as part of this debrief. Might be needed, and if uh, based on our assessment, a uh, staff member needed to be referred to a mental health professional. We certainly were part of making sure that happened. Um, so I hope that that addresses that question and feel free to, to pop another one in there if that's not quite what you're looking for. And the employee assistance program is our mental health resource that we would go to just to be specific about that, which we mentioned at the end of every um, debrief. We have a good partnership with them. Uh, Lauren has a question about some of the, the practicalities here. Where do you hold the debrief? Is it in the clinical area? Is it in a break room? Uh, and then as well, how does the chaplain handle the debrief if they're tied up with the family? So some staffing questions here. How do you literally make this happen? So I'll go for the staffing question. And then Greg, I'm going to ask you to 
field the question about where the debriefs are held. I think Greg probably led the most debriefs during our study. Um, so the staffing question was one that we were very concerned about. Um, we are staffed to a level at our level one trauma facility that a chaplain responds to every code event 24 seven, 365. Um, the chaplain's role in responding to that code event is to support family um, and the patient. Um, if the, if the patient um, you know, when the, when the patient is revived or able to engage if they are. Um, and then that chaplain's role was also to sort of provide general support to staff. For the purposes of this study, we did not want to detract from support to family or patient. And so we actually um, conducted the study during times when we could have two chaplains available in-house. So we had one chaplain designated to support um, family and the patient, and we had a study chaplain specifically designated um, and trained to lead the postcode debrief. And so then the study chaplain's role would actually be to identify a co-leader, to begin discussing like when the debrief would occur, to begin recruiting people to participate in the debrief and getting their contact information. Um, so that was some of the logistics was um, because of the demand for the recruitment with the study, um, we, we had two chaplains. Um, so unfortunately we weren't able to um, cover off shifts, evening and weekends um, as part of the study, um, which is one limitation. Um, those folks certainly also uh, need and deserve support. And that's something we're continuing to think about. Now, she Shelly, you mentioned two chaplains, one for the debrief, one for the family. Uh, and Susan has a question about chaplains attending the code itself. So was that, was there ever overlap there? And then how was the, how did you, if that is true, then how did you handle that dual responsibility for having been part of the code and leading the debriefing afterwards? Greg, do you want to speak to this one? Well, first I'll speak to the, the question about where the debriefs were held. Uh, so usually there's a, uh, on our units, there's a break area um, that we can close the door uh, and have an open discussion so as not to violate violate any uh, HIPAA regulations. So we, we made sure we had a private area uh, to hold the debriefs. Now, what was the other question? Uh, if if the, the issues of if the chaplain who was leading the debriefing was also part of the code itself, so in theory, the chaplain is impacted to a similar degree as staff, and then they have to leave the debrief. How does that juggling take place? So as Shelly mentioned earlier, we'd have two chaplains respond. One would actually be leading the debrief, and the other one would be participating, actively participating in the code, i.e. being with family uh, or any visitors that may be present. Uh, and I get the fact that uh, I think the question is kind of surrounding, well, you still were present and the code still maybe affected, affected you uh, in some type of way. And that's true. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we do is that we have uh, peer groups, we chaplains, we meet regularly. And so we process with one another. And if that is not enough, uh, there's always and I don't mind admitting it, to having a personal therapist and are taking advantage of EAP ourselves. Uh, Donna has an interesting question about 
uh, you know, after a code happens, there are still other medical needs within the institution. So how do you overcome the need for staff to go help other patients and find time for the debrief? And I think this is a, a logistics question of, you know, it, it is, I don't know, I, I don't want to say tempting, but it is possible that everyone's going to disperse. And so is there this need to kind of bring them all back together? And, and what are the challenges implicit in that? Thank you, Donna. Greg, do you want to give this one a first response? Do you want me to give it a first try? Hey, you go right ahead, Sally. Oh, thank you. Um, so yes, this definitely was a challenge. This was part of um, th this type of study is called a feasibility and acceptability study. So could we find a reasonable way to do this within the typical real challenges um, of the flow of busy hospital units? Um, and you know, would the way we choose to do it be acceptable to the people who are receiving it, the staff? Um, so this um, was definitely a part of the study and required a lot of adjustments on our part because it turns out that different disciplines have different flows. So nursing would actually need a little bit more time to be able to be ready for the debrief because nursing was doing a lot of direct patient care as the code was ending. Um, so nurses were not immediately available due to documentation, due to administering medications, due to other responsibilities in the room with that patient or with their other patients to stop right now and do the code debrief. That was really uh, a challenge. Physicians, on the other hand, particularly with the code team or a consulting team, a specialist like a cardiologist or pulmonologist, um, lung or heart doctors, um, they actually have other patients they need to see. So as soon as the code's done, they're out, right? They're headed to another unit to their next patient. Respiratory therapy, sort of the same way. And so um, one of the challenges was finding ways to bring folks together. Um, and one advantage was actually that we, that this was a formal study because we actually had these recruitment slips of paper so that we could send them the surveys later. And we got their phone number and their permission to text them. So we would send out um, for most of them a text and say, um, you know, we're going to meet at three o'clock in conference room A, which is on one of the units. They know where it is. And what we would have done is coordinated with the clinical leader on that unit and said, all right, you know, what's the flow of your day look like? When's the most likely time that we can get the key players together to have this conversation? There were some people we prioritized for that conversation. We prioritized the bedside nurse who we anticipated would be most impacted. Um, and we, we tried to get um, other multidisciplinary team members um, involved as well. Um, and that was another novel piece of the debriefs was actually a lot of debrief processes have been focused on supporting nurses. We wanted to support the whole team that was in the room during the code. Um, so finding some of that rhythm. So typically it was either about half an hour after the code or several hours later in the day um, that we tried to bring people back. Um, and, and we just texted people and let them know the room and the space. And inevitably people would um, you know, come in a couple minutes after the debrief started or might have to step out. So there's this process of movement during the conversation um, that the chaplain just has to be really flexible with. You, anything you want to add about that, Greg? No, Sally, I think you covered it really well. Thank you. 
Uh, here's an interesting question. Uh, has there been any, so I'm sorry, all the questions are interesting. I shouldn't put it that way, but has any research been done on other types of code events? And so this question specifically references behavior codes where maybe a patient is restrained. Uh, so is there, has any work, even if it's not called at the pause or exactly set up this way, but has any work been done on other codes? Kelly is probably most familiar with the literature, so she's going to love me for pitching this one to her. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, so our literature review was only about resuscitation events, but in that process, there is literature out there about other traumatic experiences in the hospital in general. Um, we do have a chaplain here at IU Health who's very interested in what we would call a behavioral alert or a, uh, an APT. Um, so uh, I did not see any specific uh, literature about behavioral or mental health crises as opposed to traumas or code blues um, or other other medical emergencies. Um, but I'm sure there is there is literature there and there is a great interest in this facility about continuing that that research. Thank you, Kelly. Um, and I'll just add that um, we did not include the emergency department in our study. There is some literature that suggests that the needs of the emergency department and the flow there is different than on inpatient units. Um, so something more like what's called a pause um, to take a couple of moments of silence or a couple of moments of deep breaths um, as a team um, might be more appropriate in that setting. And we were specifically looking at the inpatient context, which has a different flow than the emergency department. Uh, Paul asks, how frequent are codes on the unit where this was studied? Ooh, Kelly or Greg? Greg has the most recent experience up there. Oh, thank you. Uh, multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. It just depends on the time of year. Um, but I would if I was to guesstimate, I would say probably at least 20 times a week. And that's because of the acuity of the patients. I just wanna point out, we're at one of the highest levels of care um, hospitals in the state of Indiana. Um, so that really is about how sick our patient population is um, and the type of disease processes that the patients on that unit are experiencing. Beth has an interesting question about how sort of the next step or the practical implications for implementing uh, work like this and says, you know, do, have you explored how this could improve morale or the reduction of burnout? So, you know, what is the overall impact of a system like a pause, um, whether you're, you know, from experience or speculating, but what could this actually do for an institution? I think we've seen the most... Um positive uptake and responses um, from a unit that Greg works with. So Greg, do you want to speak a little bit about the culture shift that you noticed occurring on your unit during the study? Yes. So one of the first things that I noticed that uh, were that staff members were more aware of uh, what chaplains do. Uh, and what I mean by that is, not only are we there for patients uh, and family members, but we're there for the staff. Uh, we're present. Uh, and then the culture shift that I noticed was the fact that uh, the clinicians on the unit utilize chaplains more effectively. 
they were able to recognize situations that a chaplain uh, could be involved in and maybe uh, before a situation got out of hand as far as an APT or, or behavioral alert, um, um, being able to communicate uh, with the patients about their needs, uh, emotional and spiritual, and uh, just overall use of chaplaincy on the particular unit. Um, well, I should say chaplains were utilized more effectively, in my opinion. Thank you, Greg. And I'll just add that by the end of the study, um, as we were nearing the end, um, that there were team members on uh, the unit where we held the, the highest number of debriefs um, that after a code, they would see us and come up to one of the study chaplains and say, hey, are we going to do that debrief now? Can we have it now? We're ready for that debrief. Um, and that, you know, was very different than when we first began. And they're like, I'm not sure if I have time for that. Um, I think it's not that they didn't want to, but the demands of clinical flow um, and, you know, prioritizing the needs of their patients and families, um, it really was hard to figure out how to fit it in. So we did notice um, some culture shift there and um, really finding it valuable, not only when the, the code was a very difficult one, but even with codes that were um, uh, maybe less stressful, um, having an opportunity to share with one another what went well. Um, and give each other kudos um, was, was also valuable. Um, folks let us know during the interview process. Greg, were you gonna say something else? No, I was not. Okay. I think we have time probably for just one more question. And because I've seen this phrase come up a lot, I think this is the right question at this point. What is the difference between what we're talking about today and something like a code lavender that a lot more chaplains are familiar with? Would anyone like to take that or would you like me to give it a shot? I, I can start it and you can finish Thank you, it Kelly. up. Yeah. So um, yeah, the conversations that I'm seeing in the chat about Code Lavender and um, other and the pause, these are all interventions that might be might be assessed uh, during the postcode debrief. So as we we do the clinical side, we do the emotional side, the chaplain is is doing what we do for patients all the time. They're looking at the emotions, they're looking at the reactions and the interaction between the team, and they're trying to figure out what this team needs next. And it might be, you know, this floor has had five codes this in the last two days, they need a code lavender, right? Or it might be that this particular code experience was specifically traumatic, and we might need a critical incident stress debrief about this specific experience. Um, so all of those are interventions that um, on our debrief tool, um, what, hopefully maybe we'll send it out, right, Shelly? Um, at the bottom of our debrief tool, it has, uh, you know, if the chaplain is noticing X, then here are some suggested interventions. And if we're noticing Y, here are some other suggested interventions. And so the code lavender and the and other, other um, pauses and different things that I've been seeing, I just love that there's so much engagement, interaction and brainstorming happening in the chat. Uh, all of those can be wrapped up as uh, interventions based on our assessment of the team's need. And then I'll turn it over to, to other Great people. Great job, Kelly. I think that was a very comprehensive answer um, and, and really spoke to the various aspects and purpose of the code debrief, so thank you. 
Well, thank you all for joining us uh, this afternoon. It's it's such a joy to hear both from our panel and such an engaged audience uh, in the chat. I see lots of sparks flying, hopefully some connections being made there, uh, lots of opportunities for collaboration and good work to be done there. So thank you all very much. We hope you will join us uh, for our next event. You'll get an email here in the next couple of days that will have the recording, the slides, all that information. Uh, and until next time, have a great week. Bye-bye.